Chapter Two, Part Four of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One. Walks in the Country, Part Four. The Cowslip Ball, May sixteenth. There are moments in life when, without any visible or immediate cause, the spirits sink and fail, as it were, under the mere pressure of existence. Moments of unaccountable depression, when one is weary of one's very thoughts, haunted by images that will not depart, images many and various, but all painful, friends lost or changed or dead, hopes disappointed even in their accomplishment, fruitless regrets, powerless wishes, doubt and fear and self-distrust and self-disapprobation. They who have known these feelings, and who is there so happy as not to have known some of them, will understand why Alfieri became powerless and Foisart dull, and why even needlework, the most effectual sedative, that grand soother and composer of woman's distress, fails to comfort me today. I will go out into the air this cool, pleasant afternoon and try what that will do. I fancy that exercise or exertion of any kind is the true specific for nervousness, Fling but a stone, and the giant dies. I will go to the meadows, oh, the beautiful meadows, and I will have my materials of happiness, Lizzie and May, and a basket for flowers, and we'll make a cowslip ball. Did you ever see a cowslip ball, my Lizzie? No? Oh, come away then, make haste. Run, Lizzie. And on we go, fast, fast down the road, across the lea, past the workhouse, along by the great pond, till we slide into the deep, narrow lane, whose hedges seem to meet over the water, and win our way to the little farmhouse at the end. Through the farmyard, Lizzie, over the gate, never mind the cows, they're quiet enough. I don't mind them, says Miss Lizzie, boldly and truly, and with a proud affronted air, displeased at being thought to mind anything, and showing by her attitude and manner some design of proving her courage by an attack on the largest of the herd in the shape of a pull by the tail. I don't mind them. I know you don't, Lizzie, but let them alone and don't chase the turkey cock. Come to me, my dear. And for a wonder, Lizzie came. In the meantime, my other pet, Mayflower, had also gotten into a scrape. She had driven about a huge, unwieldy sow, till the animal's grunting had disturbed the repose of a still more enormous Newfoundland dog, the guardian of the yard. Out he sallied, growling from the depth of his kennel, erecting his tail and shaking his long chain. May's attention was instantly diverted from the sow to this new playmate, friend or foe, she cared not which and he of the kennel, seeing his charge unhurt and out of danger, was at leisure to observe the charms of his fair enemy as she frolicked round him, always beyond the reach of his chain, yet always with the natural instinctive coquetry of her sex, alluring him to the pursuit which she knew to be in vain. I never saw a prettier flirtation. At last the noble animal, wearied out, retired to the inmost recesses of his habitation, and would not even approach her when she stood right before the entrance. "'You're properly served, May. Come along, Lizzie. 
across this wheat field, and now over the gate. Oh, stop, let me lift you down. No jumping, no breaking of necks, Lizzie. And here we are in the meadows and out of the world. Robinson Crusoe in his lonely island had scarcely a more complete or a more beautiful solitude. These meadows consist of a double row of small enclosures of rich grassland, a mile or two in length, sloping down from high arable grounds on either side to a little nameless brook that winds between them with a course which in its infinite variety, clearness and rapidity seems to emulate the bold rivers of the north, of whom far more than of our lazy southern streams our rivulet presents a miniature likeness. Never was water more exquisitely tricksy, now darting over the bright pebbles, sparkling and flashing in the light with a bubbling music as sweet and as wild as the song of the woodlark, now stretching quietly along, giving back the rich tufts of the golden marsh marigolds which grow on its margin, now sweeping round a fine reach of green grass, rising steeply into a high mound, a mimic promontory, whilst the other side sinks softly away, like some tiny bay, and the water flows between, so clear, so wide, and so shallow, that Lizzie, longing for adventure, is sure she could cross unwetted. Now dashing through two sandbanks, a torrent deep and narrow, which may clears at a bound, now sleeping, half hidden beneath the alders and hawthorns and wild roses, with which the banks are so profusely and variously fringed, while flags, lilies and other aquatic plants almost cover the surface of the stream. A footnote. Walking along these meadows one bright sunny afternoon, a year or two back, and rather late in the season, I had an opportunity of noticing a curious circumstance in natural history. Standing close to the edge of the stream, I remarked a singular appearance on a large tuft of flags. It looked like bunches of flowers, the leaves of which seemed dark yet transparent, intermingled with brilliant tubes of bright blue or shining green. On examining this phenomenon more closely, it turned out to be several clusters of dragonflies just emerged from their deformed chrysalis state and still torpid and motionless from the wetness of their filmy wings. Half an hour later we returned to the spot and they were gone. We had seen them at the very moment when beauty was complete and animation dormant. I have since found nearly a similar account of this curious process in Mr Bingley's very entertaining work called Animal Biography. End of footnote. And so back to the brook. In good truth it is a beautiful brook, and one that Walton himself might have sitted by and loved, for trout are there. We see them as they dart up the stream, and hear and start at the sudden plunge when they spring to the surface for the summer flies. Isaac Walton would have loved our brook and our quiet meadows. They breathe the very spirit of his own peacefulness, a soothing quietude that sinks into the soul. There is no path through them, not one. We might wander a whole spring day and not see a trace of human habitation. They belong to a number of small proprietors who allow each other access through their respective grounds from pure kindness and neighbourly feeling, a privilege never abused. 
and the fields on the other side of the water are reached by a rough plank or a tree thrown across or some such homely bridge. We ourselves possess one of the most beautiful, so that the strange pleasure of property, that instinct which makes Lizzie delight in her broken doll, and may in the bare bone which she has pilfered from the kennel of her recreant admirer of Newfoundland, is added to the other charms of this enchanting scenery. A strange pleasure it is when one so poor as I can feel it. Perhaps it is felt most by the poor. With the rich it may be less intense, too much diffused and spread out, becoming thin by expansion like leaf gold. The little of the poor may be not only more precious but more pleasant to them. Certain that bit of grassy and blossomy earth, with its green knolls and tufted bushes, its old pollards wreathed with ivy, and its bright and babbling waters, is very dear to me. But I must always have loved these meadows, so fresh and cool and delicious to the eye and to the tread, full of cowslips and of all vernal flowers. Shakespeare's song of spring bursts irrepressibly from our lips as we step on them. When daisies pied and violets blue, and lady smocks all silver white, and cuckoo buds of yellow hue do paint the meadows with delight, the cuckoo then on every tree. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! cried Lizzie, breaking in with her clear childish voice, and immediately, as if at her call, the real bird from a neighbouring tree, for these meadows are dotted with timber like a park, began to echo my lovely little girl. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! I have a prejudice very unpastoral and unpoetical, but I cannot help it, I have many such, against this harbinger of spring. His note is so monotonous, so melancholy, and then the boys mimic him. One hears cuckoo, cuckoo, in dirty streets, among smoky houses, and the bird is hated for faults not his own. But prejudices of taste, likings and dislikings, are not always vanquishable by reason. So, to escape the serenade from the tree, which promised to be of considerable duration, when once that eternal song begins, on it goes, ticking like a clock, to escape that noise, I determined to excite another, and challenged Lizzie to a cowslip gathering, a trial of skill and speed to see which should soonest fill her basket. My stratagem succeeded completely. What scrambling, what shouting, what glee from Lizzie! Twenty cuckoos might have sung unheard while she was pulling her own flowers and stealing mine and laughing, screaming, and talking through all. At last the baskets were filled, and Lizzie declared victor, and down we sat on the brink of the stream, under a spreading hawthorn, just disclosing its own pearly buds, and surrounded with the rich and enamelled flowers of the wild hyacinth, blue and white, to make our cowslip ball. Everyone knows the process, to nip off the tuft of flowerets just below the top of the stalk and hang each cluster nicely balanced across a riband till you have a long string like a garland, then to press them closely together and tie them tightly up. We went on very prosperously, considering, 
as people say of a young lady's drawing, or a Frenchman's English, or a woman's tragedy, or of the poor little dwarf who works without fingers, or the ingenious sailor who writes with his toes, or generally of any performance which is accomplished by means seemingly inadequate to its production. To be sure, we met with a few accidents. First, Lizzie spoiled nearly all her cowslips by snapping them off too short, so there was a fresh gathering. In the next place, May overset my full basket and sent the blossoms floating like so many fairy favours down the brook. Then, when we were going on pretty steadily, just as we had made a superb wreath and were thinking of tying it together, Lizzie, who held the ribbon, caught a glimpse of a gorgeous butterfly, all brown and red and purple, and, skipping off to pursue the new object, let go her hold. So all our treasures were abroad again. At last, however, by dint of taking a branch of alder as a substitute for Lizzie, and hanging the basket in a pollard ash out of sight of May, the cowslip ball was finished. What a concentration of fragrance and beauty it was, golden and sweet to satiety, rich to sight and touch and smell. Lizzie was enchanted, and ran off with her prize, hiding amongst the trees in the very coyness of ecstasy, as if any human eye, even mine, would be a restraint on her innocent raptures. In the meantime I sat listening, not to my enemy the cuckoo, but to a whole concert of nightingales, scarcely interrupted by any meaner bird, answering and vying with each other in those short delicious strains which are to the ear as roses to the eye, those snatches of lovely sound which come across us as airs from heaven. Pleasant thoughts, delightful associations awoke as I listened, and almost unconsciously I repeated to myself the beautiful story of the lutist and the nightingale from Ford's Lover's Melancholy. Here it is. Is there in English poetry anything finer? Passing from Italy to Greece, the tales which poets of an elder time have feigned to glorify their temp bred in me desire of visiting paradise. To Thessaly I came, and living private without acquaintance of more sweet companions than the old inmates to my love, my thoughts, I day by day frequented silent groves and solitary walks. One morning early this accident encountered me. I heard the sweetest and most ravishing contention that art and nature ever were at strife in. A sound of music touched mine ears, or rather indeed entranced my soul, as I stole nearer, invited by the melody, I saw this youth, this fair-faced youth, upon his lute with strains of strange variety and harmony, proclaiming, as it seemed, so bold a challenge to the clear choristers of the woods, the birds, that as they flocked about him, all stood silent, wondering at what they heard. I wondered too. A nightingale, nature's best skilled musician, undertakes the challenge, and for every several strain the well-shaped youth could touch, she sang him down. He could not run divisions with more art upon his quaking instrument than she, the nightingale, did with her various notes reply to. Some time thus spent, the young man grew at last into a pretty anger, 
that a bird whom art had never taught cliffs, moods, or notes should vie with him for mastery, whose study had busied many hours to perfect practice. To end the controversy, in a rapture upon his instrument he plays so swiftly, so many voluntaries, and so quick, that there was curiosity and cunning, concord in discord, lines of differing method meeting in one full centre of delight. The bird, ordained to be music's first martyr, strove to imitate these several sounds, which, when her warbling throat failed in, for grief down dropped she on his lute and break her heart. It was the quaintest sadness to see the conqueror upon her hearse to weep a funeral elegy of tears. He looked upon the trophies of his art, then sighed, then wiped his eyes, then sighed and cried, Alas, poor creature, I will soon revenge this cruelty upon the author of it. Henceforth, this lute, guilty of innocent blood, shall never more betray a harmless peace to an untimely end. And in that sorrow, as he was pashing it against a tree, I suddenly stepped in. End of poem. When I had finished the recitation of this exquisite passage, the sky, which had been all the afternoon dull and heavy, began to look more and more threatening. Darker clouds, like wreaths of black smoke, flew across the dead leaden tint. A cooler, damper air blew over the meadows, and a few large, heavy drops splashed in the water. We shall have a storm, Lizzie. May, where are ye? Quick, quick, my Lizzie, run, run, faster, faster. And off we ran, Lizzie not at all displeased at the thoughts of a wetting, to which indeed she is almost as familiar as a duck, May, on the other hand, peering up at the weather and shaking her pretty ears with manifest dismay. Of all animals next to a cat, a greyhound dreads rain. She might have escaped it, her light feet would have borne her home long before the shower, but May is too faithful for that. Too true a comrade understands too well the laws of good fellowship, so she waited for us. She did, to be sure, gallop on before, and then stop and look back, and beckon, as it were, with some scorn in her black eyes at the slowness of our progress. We, in the meanwhile, got on as fast as we could, encouraging and reproaching each other. Faster, my Lizzie! Oh, what a bad runner! Faster, faster! Oh, what a bad runner! echoed my sauce box. You're so fat, Lizzie, you make no way. Oh, and who else is fat? retorted the darling. Oh, certainly her mother is right. I do spoil that child. By this time we were thoroughly soaked, all three. It was a pelting shower that drove through our thin summer clothing and poor May's short glossy coat in a moment. And then, when we were wet to the skin, the sun came out, actually the sun, as if to laugh at our plight. And then, more provoking still, when the sun was shining and the shower over, came a maid and a boy to look after us, loaded with cloaks and umbrellas enough to fence us against a whole day's rain. Never mind. 
On we go, faster and faster, Lizzie obliged to be most ignobly carried, having had the misfortune to lose a shoe in the mud, which we left the boy to look after. And here we are at home, dripping, but glowing and laughing, and bearing our calamity most manfully. May, a dog of excellent sense, went instantly to bed in the stable, and is at this moment over head and ears in straw. Lizzie is gone to bed too, coaxed into that wise measure by a promise of tea and toast, and of not going home till to-morrow, and the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And I am enjoying the luxury of dry clothing by a good fire. Really getting wet through now and then is no bad thing, finery apart, for one should not like spoiling a new police or a handsome plume. But when there is nothing in question but a white gown and a straw bonnet, as was the case today, it is rather pleasant than not. The little chill refreshes, and our enjoyment of the subsequent warmth and dryness is positive and absolute. Besides, the stimulus and exertion do good to the mind as well as to the body. How melancholy I was all the morning! How cheerful I am now! Nothing like a shower-bath, a real shower-bath, such as Lizzie and May and I have undergone, to cure low spirits. Try it, my dear readers, if ever you be nervous. I will answer for its success. End of chapter 2, part 4